Today's podcast is brought to you by one of the absolute best real estate agents in the Cleveland market, Tom Sugar with Howard Hanna Real Estate. Tom's here to help you understand the home buying and selling process. Um, he's here to ensure that you're also always going to get the best price, whether you're buying a home or whether you're selling a home, and his customer service skills are top notch. Give Tom a call at 216-406-2841. That's 216-406-2841. You can call or text him or visit his website, shugsells.com, S-H-U-G-S-E-L-L-S.com. Visit Tom Sugar, everybody. He is the best. Welcome back, everybody. Um, I'm here with Eric Swinderman. He is an Emmy-nominated writer, director, and producer, most recently and no notably um, uh, directed and wrote the 2021 film The Enormity of Life, um, starring Breckenmeyer, Emily Kinney, and Giselle Eisenberg. What a movie. Oh, thank you. I was, like, blown away when I, when I, when you had originally sent me the link. I was like, man, you're working with some serious names in here. How, um, how did you network to get with these people? How did you, um, how did, how did this movie come about? I really just want to dive into that start. Yeah, so you got to go all the way back to a movie I did in 2012 called Made in Cleveland. Okay. And that movie, it was... It was intended to be a collaboration of Cleveland-based filmmakers. And it was really just supposed to be no budget, just, to, just like, let's see if all of us filmmakers can get together, get along, network, make, make this thing together. Um, and it grew because um, I had met a director by the name of David Wayne, who most people know, who wrote and directed Wet Hot American Summer, Role models. You know, oh yeah. Oh models. yeah. And so I met David um, like in 2006 or something like that, and we kept we kept in touch a little bit. And then I asked him to come to Cleveland. He was from he's from Shaker Heights. I asked him to come to Cleveland. I was doing a, a screenwriting workshop, and I said it would be cool if you could come and just do like a Q and A and give advice and right. about how to make it as a screenwriter in Hollywood and all that. And so he did, he came and, and we, <clears throat> while we were there, while he was in town, we talked about doing this project. He said, we should do a movie, like a Cleveland movie and get all the Clevelanders. So he said, we'll get Halle Berry and Molly Shannon and Drew Carey and, and all the big you know, Cleveland people. Uh, and I said, that would be awesome. So that's how Made in Cleveland, that was how it was born. It all started. Concept. And so we started putting together, I started reaching out to filmmakers in the area whose work I had seen that I, respected or whatever and we started putting together this plan to do 10 short films vignettes in one feature okay and they all have the theme of love in cleveland okay so there was a movie out at the time called uh, new york i love you and another one called paris je t'aime and they it was that there was a very similar concept it was a bunch of famous actors and directors making films about new york and paris and then they would just sort of put them all together. And that was the concept. So the film was originally called Cleveland, I Love You. And um, we did that movie. And, but David was doing a bunch of projects at the time. And he was, had two shows on Adult Swim. Um, and so he's, he kind of had to bow out. But he, I think he felt bad because we kind of, the reason why a lot of filmmakers came on board to the project was David Wayne was attached. Of course. To so he said, I have this friend, Jamie Babbitt. 
who is from Shaker as well, but she's directing United States of Terror with Steven Spielberg, Gilmore Girls, Gossip Girl, The Middle. She was I didn't realize we had so many like Cleveland. Yeah, like, Shaker is like like damn, you know? seriously. So they uh, so Jamie, I called Jamie and said, hey, David gave me your number, and so you know you might want to do like a little vignette in this project. And Jamie at the time was dating Carrie Dornetto, who was writing on Modern Family and Community. Yeah. And so Jamie said, yeah, I'd love to come to Cleveland and, and do this thing. And then, um, so we started talking about what story, what script she might do. And then she came up with this one that she wanted to do. So she said, Why don't, okay, so go ahead and start casting for this in Cleveland. So we started casting for the one that she was going to direct. And then she emails me maybe a week later and says, Busy Phillips wants to do it. And I was like, like wow okay yeah right that... so all of a sudden my little project that doesn't really have any money any budget um was just supposed to be an experiment was a real full-fledged movie because it has a, a bona fide star right you know i mean busy at the time had done freaks and geeks and dawson's creek and er so she was like legit and we were like, wow so then they said okay we well just we need to cast for her sister so start casting people to play busy sister and then two days later she, she calls and says, uh, Gillian Jacobs wants to do it. And I was like, from Community, like my favorite show on television. Right, right. Britta wants to do it. And she's like, yeah. So next thing I know, um, we're full on SAG project, you know, changing everything. Like none of us, I mean, I, none of us, this was my first feature. I made a couple shorts that made a little bit of noise. Right. You know? But this was my first feature. And I don't know how to make a feature film with two stars. What year is this? This is 2011 when it all started. Because uh, I was telling Eric before when we all started, I was like, the first time I heard your name was at the, at was was it, yeah, it was Progressive Field probably yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah. But throwing out the first pitch, did you throw a strike? I did not. You did not. I did not. But I was a pitcher in college. Oh, no so, shit. Where? But I, uh, at Walsh University. No way. I, I, I actually... Got redshirted my first year because I got injured, and, and then I. Ended but you up, were good enough to play. I was good enough. It's all that matters. To make the team, um, but I, I never actually threw a pitch in college because I got injured, and then I got into film and quit. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, but I threw it as hard as I could because I, I was like, what am I ever going to get a chance to try to throw a fastball? Shout out to you because some people really go up there and they lob it. Yeah. You no, know. I, I I actually I'm I'm embarrassed to say I practiced for a week. <laughs> I pitched my whole life. I would have too. And I was like, I don't remember how to throw a pitch anymore because it had been a good 10 years. Especially, did you throw like off the mound or like in I, front I of it? Off the mound. I was like, I'm throwing off the rubber. Yeah. I'm going to wind up. Probably seems a lot farther when you get up there. You know, it's the same distance as in high school, but it looks bigger. Yeah, it looks bigger, now. right? But I, yeah, so, but yeah, so Busy and Gillian are now on board and I'm like, I don't know how to make a feature film. Like, like I know how to, write something i kind of, i know how to point a camera and direct actors but i don't know how to produce right now the, and the whole concept of that film was supposed to be that each filmmaker that we hired was supposed to make their own film and kind of based on our guidelines and us our approving scripts and stuff and then we'd put it all together in editing <clears throat> problem is none of the filmmakers that we had brought on were really producers i mean as you know most independent filmmakers they're, they point a camera and they shoot. And they, they probably are, are more gearheads than they are. Producers. 100%. Like they know the cameras, they know the lighting, but they don't know how to really produce. And so none of them did. And so 
this small little project that I was just supposed to be sort of the figurehead for, um, I ended up producing 11 short films simultaneously. Damn. Now, did you end up producing them because you were like, you realized that was the situation? I was the only person yeah, so you were like, I got to do it. And because none of the, I mean, I, I mean, nothing against the filmmakers, but we were all younger. I mean, this was 12 years ago. Nobody really knew what the hell they were doing. And I think in Cleveland, when things get real, like Busy Phillips and Gillian Jacobs come mm-hmm. on the project, and David Wayne is sort of lingering in the background, I think people get really scared. I, I yeah. always said fear of success is not a real thing until I saw it in the film world, in the independent film world, where people, it's, I don't know if it, it's sort of fear of success, but they stay in their comfort zone so that they can't fail. That's the worst, though. Good at being unknown. (laughs) Yeah, and that's like I think brings me to a a point there. Like, even like for me personally, like to get outside my comfort zone has been the most important thing, right? Because like, is it um, easy to necessarily sit down and ask questions or you know talk to some? Sometimes you get uncomfortable talking to somebody, whether you know you look up to them or you know they've done such amazing things, and um, it could be intimidating. You know what I mean? So I think that's a big part of it too. But I think when you get to, get outside that comfort zone, you grow so much. And once you realize that, like for me right now, I don't want to go anywhere near my comfort zone, right? I want to keep trying to step outside of it. Um, what was the, was that the first time that you felt that, or was that the first time that you felt like you were really getting out there and putting yourself out there? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I made a couple shorts that won a few awards and stuff. And right. Some people kind of knew my name a little bit in the in the local film community, right? Just, okay. Which is you know what it is, but like I you know if I went into a you know a mixer or something like that, people usually knew like some stuff that I had done, but but that was when we took it to the next level, and and. Now, I will be the first to say, final product made in Cleveland, it's a real so-so film. It was made on a $50,000 budget. That's nothing. Busy and Gillian worked for scale. Um, and so we, they, and they were here for two days. So I barely paid them anything. I paid for their flights. Yeah. And I didn't even have to pay for their hotel because I convinced the hotel to give them free rooms. See, that's the best right there. But that's like, what you got to do, I though. I tweet about you. Uh, yeah, like it's something. So, um, so that movie was made on a fifty thousand dollar budget. So the end product, I look at it and I watch it now and I say, "Oh man, look at all the sacrifices we made that didn't go into the movie." Right. Know? And I just see a, I just see a, a decently executed movie with some good acting, some so-so acting. And, right. Um, and then, but what it did for me was it put me on the map. I mean, Cleveland had had Cleveland had movie fever at the time. The Avengers had just been shot here. Um, Alex Cross, Fun Size, all these sort of big movies had been shot here right at the time that we were going into production. And some, for some reason, um, the Cleveland media was lumping us in with them. Really? Yeah, it was like. Hollywood's coming to Cleveland. Because I, like, I saw, I saw here. I was gonna say because I when I was doing research on you, if you just look you look your name up, it says there's a thing. It says it's like an interview. I think it's Hollywood and Cleveland or yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Now, I mean, busy and Gillian are Hollywood. <laughs> Hell yeah! No, no. So um, here's a question, and I, I, I gotta ask this: Is it? You say like some of those actors or actresses. There's some good actors, some shitty acting, whatever it might be. Is that? Is that tough to tell a good actor or a good actress? 
that you know you're not doing what we want you to be doing or is there just is everybody's different i'm assuming in your approach but like if they're a seasoned actor like Breckman or someone like that yeah like who am i to tell Breckman Meyer? i kind of gotta wonder yeah yeah you know I, i i think i started that way Okay. Um, of like, oh my gosh, I, who am I to tell Breckin Meyer that he's, I didn't like the way he said that line or whatever. But honestly, when you start working with actors of that caliber, that just doesn't happen. Really? They don't do anything that you don't like. You're, they're harder might, on themselves. You say, hey, let's try it a different way. But it, it wasn't that the first take was bad. It was just maybe we can, maybe, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, it's also tough when you wrote it. That you you yeah. hear the line in your head, and you think, "Oh, I know how it, the what word should be emphasized there, or whatever." But really, the funny thing about with Brecken was his take. His first take was always great, and that's all right. Well, let's do one for safety, and then we do another take, and he would want to do take after take after take because he wasn't happy with his performance. Which you'd rather have that probably than yeah, somebody. Yeah, there'd be times where I'd be like, "Brecken, we're good. I'm happy with that. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Like, Just let me do one more." Give me some direction, man. I'm like, that was awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, and when you work with actors like that, it's it's that's the difference between working with them and working with local actors. There are local actors who have talent. Right. Uh, but they, I don't know, there's just this level of preparedness from people who make their living off of acting where they come in and it's just a different level. Like, I flew out to L.A. before we started shooting and took Brecken, Emily, and Giselle out to dinner. Because I had actually never met them when we cast them. Because, you know, my people talked to their people. And, right. and our casting director talked to their agents. And they set everything up. I was sort of involved in more like, I like that person, I like that person, I like that person. But we didn't audition any of them. Because they were, I, I already knew what all of them could do. And if they were willing to do our movie, and, that's, and I liked them, then, then we were going to go with them. So the first time I met them, we flew out to L.A., and just met at a restaurant and sat there for about four hours, eating, drinking, and um, just talking about what I had envisioned for this project, right. how it was going to go. And it was so crazy. It was an it was a it was an aha moment as I was sitting there surrounded by three actors that I legitimately were at that moment was DVRing their shows. Yeah, so you're like a you're a real fan. Like The Walking Dead with Emily Kinney. That's wild. I was I was that was one of my top DVR shows, Life in Pieces with Giselle Eisenberg. Yep. I was DVRing at the time, and uh, Designated Survivor, which Brecken was on at that time. So I'm like surrounded by people who I watch every week on television, and they all know every word of my script that I wrote four years ago. Do you think a lot of these actors and actresses when they come in? And I mean, maybe this is the difference. Do you think they dive like you mean they know the role that they're going to be in? They understand they've read the script. Do Do you think the difference is is like they have? I'm going to become this person for this role. Absolutely. At least it, I at least Brecken did. I mean, that was his big big thing at dinner that night. Was I don't want to play this the way you know people might expect me to play it. Right. right. He plays a man who's suicidal he's bipolar he said i don't want to play some emotionless zombie right right uh but because it's in the even in the trailer it says a story without feeling right right yeah 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 um so just i mean brecken i remember emily you know had production assistants coming to her hotel at night to read lines with her like they were in cleveland for three weeks 
and they didn't go out and party. They they went they went down to Barrio and got tacos. Yeah. Reckon I think took an Uber one night to Mitchell's and got ice cream or something like that. Good call. By and large, they were they were in their hotel rooms. That's the difference, though. That is the difference. They're not out partying and getting fucked up. And that's, I think, like a lot of people, I mean, I'm guilty of it for sure. Um, You know, over the summer, I was was going after it too hard. And it's funny because you end up spending, instead of Super Bowl Sunday out getting messed up, you know what I mean? Let's do something productive. Yeah. You know, and I think that's also the difference, too, when you get probably just anybody working in general when they're when that's more important to them they understand the assignment they understand why they're here i mean giselle eisenberg was 11 at the time that's crazy and she and by the way everybody just her performance is amazing she was 11 at the time and i'm telling you what i can count on one hand the amount of quote-unquote local actors that have come to a set as prepared or as engaged as she was. Were you surprised about that? Um, a, a little, I mean, partially no, because I, I knew her already. We hung out a little bit and, and we talked a little bit and I'd seen her performances on other things. So I knew she was the real deal. I knew she was a, a legitimate prodigy. But at the same time, then you, you pull back and my daughter at the time was 11. So she was the same age and was also getting into acting. And I remember saying over and over to my daughter, if you want to do this, that's who you model. You, f- you do what she does. That's awesome. And so there would be so many times when, when my daughter was like doing something maybe unproductive. I said, do you think Giselle would be doing that right now? Yeah. <laughs> or do you think but she, she looked up to her, so yeah, that makes yeah. that and difference. They text, they text each other too, still. That's, um, that's so awesome. She, she got very excited that, you know, she got to hang out with Breck and Meyer from Clueless. And she got to, you know, and she has Giselle's phone number and all that stuff so that's such a big thing to have a mentor you know what i mean or yeah. someone to look up to now you grew up around here right lakewood I, River, I, like I where are you from for a long time but i grew up in a town called new philadelphia i've heard of it where is it about 100 miles south of here just below canton okay yeah i have yeah. heard of that about 20 minutes from the football hall of fame but 20 minutes south of football what made you come up to like northeast ohio well I, I went off to college in walsh university which is in north canton <clears throat> and i spent two years there um, when I decided I wasn't going to play baseball anymore, um, obviously I was giving up a scholarship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I couldn't afford to go to Walsh because, you know, Walsh is a private school. Very it's expensive, expensive, yeah. Even expensive in the 90s. Um, I can't even imagine what it is right now. I would um, true, probably but, a uh, lot. I just decided, well, I've always loved Cleveland. Obviously, I was a big Cleveland sports fan. Right. I, you know, to me, Cleveland was the big city. I grew up in a town of like 17,000 people. So this is a total change of pace for you at the yeah, time when so you're coming like, up here. Oh, well, I'll just move to Cleveland. And I was like, that's kind of like, if I want to go to L.A. or New York, Cleveland would probably be a good starter city. Yeah, definitely. And so I just said, I'll just transfer to Cleveland State. It's a really cheap school. I think it was like $1,700 a semester. Oh, hell yeah. That's, it's, that's um, at that time? Yeah. Or maybe 1700 a quarter. I think they were on quarters. Still, then. though. But still. So I was like, okay, that I could do. Like, I could get a part-time job and, and pay for college, you know? Yeah. So I moved up to Cleveland. With set, after I moved in, I couldn't find an apartment on short notice. Um, so I moved into the dorm, which I was kind of pissed about because I was I was going to be a junior. I was like, I've already done the dorm thing. I'm, too, I'm, too I'm out on the dorm thing. But I moved into the dorm, and by the time it was all said and done, I had my books. I was registered. I had seventy five bucks. Well, in my pocket, it was all I had in the world. It was seventy five dollars. Damn. And I was here in Cleveland, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to finish school and and uh, you know do it. So I I've lived everywhere in Northeast Ohio. I've lived in Cleveland. 
I live in Cleveland now. I live in West Park now. I live, I live in Lakewood for a long time. I lived in Parma. I've lived in North Royalton. Um, I think that's all the places. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love Lakewood and West Park is one of my favorite places actually around here. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just you really meet some true Clevelanders there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You talk about like blue collar. You got a lot of cops and firefighters yeah, over there. Yeah, the neighborhood I'm in, I was told, was like a long time cop neighborhood. Yeah, a lot of them that's are. Where they all bought houses so they could live in the in the district or whatever. It's like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's like the old Irish mob on Lake Avenue back in the day, right? Yeah, they all lived like, in the same spot. Yeah, we like it. It's, it's it's eclectic. It's close to things. It's uh, like 11 minutes from from here in the studio so um so it's it's convenient what was uh so you i mean we have the studio here when at what point were you like i need to i, I want to get a studio i want to make a studio and you said this is non-profit is that what you said um, well portions of the portions of it are, are non-profit we run late we run run the uh, young filmmakers academy right and that's the non-profit we're a film school for kids and teens we offer programs on Cinematography, screenwriting, acting. We have a summer camp that we do. Uh, that's our. That's sort of what our claim to fame is. We have a three-week-long summer camp that uh, the kids write, direct, and um, uh, edit a film. Uh, and then, and then we have a big red carpet premiere. What ages so, are those? That you... uh, our, our advanced camp is twelve to seventeen, so basically middle school and high school. Okay. And last year we started a beginners camp, which is eight to eleven. Okay. And that's a little bit less intensive. It's only a week. They don't write the script. We have a script prepared for them, but they just learn how to shoot it and act in it and edit it, and then that sort of is like the 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 uh, sort of smaller film to the big film so they both right. the, the red carpet premiere i'm sure working with younger kids is challenging you ever had a kid come through though that you've seen you're like damn like they are really good uh, well i mean that i mean that's really i think what is gaining a lot of traction for us is that our kids are going off we just said we had a kid last year get into nyu film school oh jesus i mean that's like the hardest film school. i was just gonna hardest say hardest i don't even know much about it but I've, i know that that's a hard one to get yeah. into she was she was she was uh with us for our first two years that we were here um and she's off and running with that we've had at least um two other students go off to film school um get into film school uh, we have one right now marshall uh, who's on the poster for um, uh, our most previous film. He, uh, I know he's uh, auditioning at Juilliard and some other places. So, yeah, I mean, our, all of our kids are on our track. We have this kid named Van who basically, I, you know, I'm, I'm executive producing this kid's show and he's coming in and it's like it's his show. Like I, the first day we were filming the show, I mean, he just was off and running. He was setting up the camera shots and um and i was just like stepping back and going all right i guess i'll go that's gotta be a proud moment for you though too you know i mean i so who was your who was your mentor growing up like who or who, who'd you look up to you're like like i love that or i or want to you know was it like a martin scorsese or like so, uh you know what i mean yeah so i went off to college not thinking about being a filmmaker i was that was not my plans i was gonna play baseball Get drafted by the Cleveland Indians. Going to the MLB, baby. Hell yeah. And that's what I was going to do. <laughs> and uh, my first year, my freshman year, I got injured. Um, I wasn't even playing baseball. I was sled riding. Oh, for real? And I injured myself. And I <clears throat> basically knew I was going to get redshirted because I couldn't perform. 
And, you know, I grew up, I mean, if when you get to college to play ball, that meant you were one of the best players on your high school team. Mm-hmm. meant you were traveling on those all-star teams in the Little League. Like, you were, you were kind of the shit, right? Like, Absolutely. You play ball. And so the idea of spending a year on a team and not playing, I, I don't think I could mentally handle that. And I don't think I had the drive to play ball if I wasn't playing ball. It's a tough place to be because it's it's more of like, hey, you're not going to play this year, but we want you to work harder than you've ever worked before. Yeah, and rehab your injury. Yeah. So one day I'm rehabbing, I'm, and I have to, before they can let me back on the field or something, this is a long time ago, this is 25 years ago, They, um, I know I was running on the track, and I, I had to run like a mile, and I had to run at a certain time. Yeah. Or I had to come back and do it the next day, right? And it was winter, and it was the, one of those cold days where like the sweat is like freezing your face yeah dude that's the worst and my back is hurting and my leg is hurting and and i'm running and i'm like man this sucks yeah it's like i don't think i want to do this anymore and i remember i just running i got to like where the gate of the track was and i just kept going <laughs> and i went back to my dorm uh i got out in the shower because i was freezing got took a hot shower and the next day i went into the to the uh uh coach's office and said yeah i think i'm done that was it. I said, I don't think I have this in me anymore. And to preface that, I had started taking film classes and stuff, and that was sort of starting to take over my interest. Um, because in the that was in the that was in January when I quit, but in September or October, so a couple months before, I was out with a bunch of guys on a Friday night or whatever, sitting at a Taco Bell, and they're like, "What are we gonna do tonight?" And then one guy who was a little bit older than the rest of us. He was a little more worldly than we were. And he's like, oh, that new Quentin Tarantino movie's coming out. It was Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I had never heard of Quentin Tarantino. What a movie. Um, I had never heard of Reservoir Dogs. Uh, and I was like, sure. I remember I'd, I'd seen the trailer, but I didn't know anything about it. <clears throat> and we went, and I was literally sitting in the movie going, holy shit. Like, I cannot believe that, that movies like this are being made. Because right. people, people who now who weren't even born at that time, don't understand. I mean, it, it had to have been like the way people who were alive when the Beatles hit. It had to have been the way they felt about seeing them play for the first time. Okay, I understand. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, people are doing that? Like, to me, when I see the Beatles, I'm not that impressed. I get it. Because things have progressed and music has changed. Yeah. And I go, oh, well. And I've heard plenty of people who sound like the Beatles. But if you had never heard anybody who sounded like the Beatles, that would have been an amazing life-changing moment for you yeah it's like a first time you're like and so the first time i saw pulp fiction nobody had made a movie like that <clears throat> and i said holy crap i can actually do that and i that's whenever i kind of walked out of the theater thinking maybe i'm done with baseball <clears throat> and i sort of tried to hang on i mean baseball is all i knew my whole life right it was my whole life for a long time how fast were you throwing uh like when i was in college maybe like 91. Damn, you were touching 90. I never touched. I got to like 86, I think. Like maybe the low to mid 80s, but then, you know, you get to college and you're, you got real trainers and stuff. You don't realize, people don't realize either, like when you go up to bat, like the difference between, you know, seeing like an 85 mile an hour fastball and like a 92, 93 mile an hour fastball. I mean, it's a big difference, you know, and the movement too. In the early 90s when I was at Walsh, like 91, was respectable because you didn't have these guys throwing 100 miles an hour like you do now. Like right now, every team practically has a guy who throws 100. And when I was a kid, if you it's threw true. 100, you were a fake guy named Ricky Vaughn, right? Yeah, for Nobody real. Threw Nolan Ryan 
you know. Didn't even touch that, really. Maybe, maybe in the early days before radar, and we didn't know what he was throwing. But That's anyway, true. I digress. Uh, so I, I quit everything, and I just threw myself full force, became the film guy, surrounded myself with other film students, and we would sit in cafes and just talk about things we wanted to make and the projects we wanted to do and just the obsession kind of began and this was in the 90s so we didn't even have the ability to do anything we want we said we wanted to do because there was no digital video it was all film there was no mac you know editing software it was all editing for real so i didn't even touch an editing piece of editing software until i graduated college so when you were getting out of the baseball field you know getting out of baseball going into film Mentally, where were you? Just were you confused? Were you like, or were you like excited? Because like, I think I was super excited because the pressure was off. Right. Like, I, now I could just learn this new thing, and I I, I kind of realized when I got to college that I knew more about filmmaking than I thought I did. Because I guess the I mean, when I was a kid, I I watched movies differently than my friends did, but I didn't know I was watching it differently. But I I realized when I looked back on it. Yeah, I understood dialogue. I understood music choices. I understood editing and pacing. I didn't know I understood it until I started to do it. And I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I know how to do this because of that movie that I watched when I was nine, you know? And it was one of those weird things where I just, that's just, I guess my brain was just drawn to that type of thing. So I think that's why I became a screenwriter is because I just was obsessed with how movie dialogue was written and, and how it's written in a way that's like there's a cadence to it and a rhythm to it. And I was really into like iambic pentameter and stuff. And so I was like, yeah, you write in these rhythms and, and sometimes you choose a word because of how many syllables it has, not because it's the right word. And it was this weird thing that I was like, yeah, I get that. And then, so I just throwing myself into that and started watching movies that I, you know, by the time when I was 19 years old and in college, I had never watched Casablanca. Yeah, I never watched, you know, any of those old films, Dog Day Afternoon and stuff. So I just sat, sort of throwing myself into stuff, and they're going to and but it was pre-internet. <laughs> there was a little bit of internet, but not a lot of internet. <clears throat> so I would go to these stores that are kind of like Borders that aren't, don't exist anymore called Media Play, and there were these big giant bookstores with coffee shops. And the first time I had seen that type of thing, right? And they, you could, they, their their entertainment section had all these scripts. Like bound, like that you could buy. So I was like buying movie scripts. So I bought the Pulp Fiction script and I just studied it and just read it. That's over, wild. Over. I didn't know you could like buy those. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You can still go today. You can buy almost most of the big movies will print their scripts and put them out there for sale and have a nice little cover and some pictures. See, that's inside. unbelievable. So, what's the first movie you ever wrote? Like, <laughs> I wrote. Like, and, and was it? And, and was it? Uh, was it? up to par for where you're at now because <laughs> I, I, I know how the first one's going i wrote this shitty script called um what goes around comes around and it was a complete tarantino ripoff right like i was just trying to write like quentin tarantino would write and the and I, but i wanted to do i i will say this one thing that i like to do is combine genres okay like if you look at a normandy like if it were at a blockbuster, which is dating myself, um, it's like dark what, com- what, humor. What wall would it be on? Would you put it in comedy? Would you would you put it in drama? Right? Like I, that's how I like. To I mean, it's literally. You know, it's it's funny you say that because even when I think about it now, it's so much of both. Yeah. 
right? Like, because there's very serious moments, but it's also a comedy. Right. Which so, is really cool, too. That's got to be cool yeah, to create Brett that. Yeah, calls it a tromedy. Yeah, it's great. it's about trauma and drama and comedy. Um, but, so I wrote this movie, and it was supposed to be like this romantic comedy that turns into like a horror movie at the end. Yeah, okay. And I was like writing. So basically, it was a total ripoff of like, when Harry met Sally, Mad About You was a big show at the time that I was into, and, and like, just, I don't know, some kind of horrible... Yeah, it was just it was awful, and I still have it. And I remember I went, I remember I took it to Kinko's, and I bound it, you know, and I put the nice little clear cover. You're <laughs> so it. proud of yourself. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> I have a script, and I was trying to, you know, figure out how to pitch it to studios and stuff. And it's and I still have it because I like to read it every once in a while. Of course, I sucked. Um, and everybody should write a sucky script for their first script because everybody is going to write a sucky script, and that's fine. Um, and we tried to make it. We tried to make it back in 96. I got some people together and we tried to shoot it on like SVHS because I had heard an interview where Quentin had shot a movie on SVHS and then transferred it to 16 millimeter. Oh, really? To make it look like film. It's like back then. That was like... back when video, you couldn't shoot at 24 frames per second. You could only shoot at 30 frames per second on video. And so, therefore, everything looked like a whole movie. No shit. So, he's had, he would send it off to Kodak and transfer it, have it transferred professionally to 16 millimeter. And then it would, and he, it, then he said it would just look like a, a cheap, low budget 16 millimeter movie, but it would still look like you shot it on film. And so, that was my big plan. I had heard an interview with him do that, and I was like, that's what I'm doing. That's what you're going to do. And uh, I think we shot a little bit of it. I cast actors from. Cleveland State, you know, just to yeah. do it. And, um, and it just, you know, fell apart. Uh, and it never got me. And I'm sure I have a tape somewhere. Yeah, I was going to say, you got to dig somewhere that up at some in point. A, in a storage. For, your, one day, for yeah. your retirement party one day, right? Yeah. So that was kind of the end of that. Uh, and it's just now that I have that script in a bin somewhere, <laughs> in a basement somewhere. In the middle of the 90s. I mean, there's no, like... Like, this wasn't possible, right? Like, I couldn't just come in here, set up a podcast, and throw it down with you, and then have it on YouTube. Or, right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you had the, you did it, like, what I would consider, like, the hard way. You're right? Because, I mean, that was, you had to network correctly. This is probably even pre, or right when cell phones are even, like, coming out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like, your networking is real. It's in person. All these connections you're making are in person. Um, stuff like that. How do you feel now when you see a lot of these different actors and actresses or YouTubers or influencers coming up? Do you look at it? You're like, damn, you have it so much easier and you, you have no idea how much harder it is to, uh, yeah, to really do it. The other thing is that these influencers, they're, they don't have any talent at all. It's I mean, weird. I, I, I try to stay away from things. I, I, we're trying to get on more onto TikTok for the school. I get it. Just because you can get so many eyes on things. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't do it. We have people that do our social media and stuff like that. So we're trying to, and we just actually hired a new social media person. So we're kind of trying to delve into that TikTok world. But I try to stay away from it because it feels just so fabricated. Right. Um, but I, I somehow, you know, when I go on Instagram, you know, every once in a while, you know, I'm there just to see what people I follow are doing. But every once in a while, something pops up on your, on your feed, that you click on and you instantly regret it. Of course. And, and then and then you go down this rabbit hole of like scrolling through all these what do they call them reels? Yeah. 
and you start scrolling, and every reel is just some scantily clad girl telling you about her new sunglasses. Isn't it unbelievable? Because, because she's gonna get rich by people paying her to say that she likes their sunglasses, and we're all supposed to care because you know she has a flat stomach, yeah, and and extensions or whatever. And I'm like, that's not like a real thing. It's not, and that can't be sustainable. I feel like the whole sex sells era, like. It's at some point it's going to get boring. Does that make well, sense? Sex sells has always been a thing, and the thing that they, the thing about America is that we have to embrace embrace it and disgrace it. We do. We, we do. To, we we still do it. Yeah. But then we have to pretend like we're repulsed by it. Yep. Right. It's like we're the ones doing it. It's That's like, an amazing way you just put that. That's exactly it. We, we, we put everybody out there and make them a sex symbol. Yeah. And then we go, oh, that's so. Dude, why would she do that? I mean, it's so true. Something said it would be really cool if, you know, a bunch of horny guys bought our product. And that's like, I think the other side with like you have, it's true. Like you go on Instagram, anything, it's half naked chicks. It's and, and like, have you seen the social dilemma? I haven't. I, I've. A lot of people have talked about it. I, I think that would be something interesting for you to watch yeah. based on your take because it's amazing the way these, because I mean this, uh, the social dilemma, it has like CEOs and VPs from like Pinterest, Twitter, Facebook, like all these former employees, that's who's doing the, the um, interview. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about how absolutely fucking dangerous social media is because it's essentially like, it's predetermined to what you like, what you've seen, what is going on, what your right. friend, you know what I mean? and. I mean, it, it's if you really looked at it, it's uh, and you watch the movie, it goes to show you how much work that these uh, different companies have done just to keep you staring at your screen. Yeah. And it's kind of fucked and, up. And to determine what they're staring at. 100%. I mean, people who think, you know, these people are like, oh, I did my own research on COVID. Yeah, like. No, you had an algorithm did your research for you <laughs> and they told you what you should think about it. Yeah. And if you're really liberal. You're going to get a bunch of news articles about how uh, the COVID vaccine is, is saving lives. If you're really conservative, you're going to get a bunch of stuff about how Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks that COVID's a hoax, you know? It's just yeah. it's insane. So I, I used to be really active on, like, Facebook with political shit and stuff. Right. I probably lost some friendships over it and stuff. Um, but, you know, I had a, I had a daughter you know, three and a half years ago, who's just absolutely everything for me. And she just put everything into perspective. Like, none of this shit matters. It doesn't. Like, I'm not going to change anybody's opinion about what they think or what. I mean, the algorithms have already gotten to them. So, so I go onto Facebook to conduct business. Mm -hmm. I have like five, you know, companies that we run on Facebook. Right. And I go there to share pictures of my daughter with my relatives who I don't see. You know, that's and that's it. great though because like you do I mean I and I think anybody who's been on social media for any amount of time knows this there's no winning ever you know like and you can have an opinion and I think you know you get the uh, endorphins release in when you get a couple likes or whatever it might be it's like oh all these people agree with me but the reality of it is is like you're right it I'll doesn't you, matter the, you know the level of toxicity in my life that has gone away since I stepped away from social media I mean I deleted my Twitter yeah um, around, I mean, I just recently deleted the Twitter around the time of like Elon Musk taking over and stuff. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Really crazy. And it just became like Lord of the Flies in there. 
He let like a lot of people nothing, back on. There was nothing um, positive about Twitter. It's the most toxic place on earth. All of it is though too. Like you look at, you know what's going to be really interesting. And like I said, I have a six-year-old son, and he goes on YouTube on his iPad and stuff like that. And you know, I watch what he does, but you're not going to catch everything. And if you think you are, you're fucking lying to yourself. Yeah. You know, and. Um, I'm interested to see what kind of repercussions the world we live in now, social media-wise, is going to have in 20 years there on these kids. There are studies in saying that, you know? that these kids are messed up, that Instagram has destroyed these kids because it's all, it's every single second of their day is a popularity contest. Yep. Every single second. And, you know, it's funny. I was watching comedians in cars getting coffee last night. Oh, yeah, it's a great one. I love that show. And he was with um, Patton Oswalt, and Patton has a young kid, and Jerry has kids and stuff, and they were talking about it. And um, Patton was talking about something that he did in front of his kid that um, the thing that's going to screw them up is not what you think it is. I believe so in that. other words, you can sit there and go, I'm going to protect them from this, I'm going to protect them from that, but the one thing that's going to screw them up is going to be the one thing that you never thought of. <laughs> I just wonder, too, like... I mean, that's a very great point you just made. I just wonder, too, like, do you think, like, with these different social media platforms and stuff, and as a parent, you can relate to this. Do you think that those guys, I mean, is this all, do you think there's ever going to come a point where everybody goes, all right, like, this is too far. Like, this is getting too fucked up. And, like, do you think maybe ever those social media platforms would ever get shut down? It'll take the worst tragedy you can imagine for that to happen. And I'm talking like, you know, a dirty bomb being set off in New York. Yeah. And, and it was directly linked to a network on Twitter. Yeah, something like something like that. fucking that insane. Take, that's how bad we, that's how far gone we are in this country. That it would take, prob- I mean, come on. How many millions have died from COVID? And you can attribute a lot of it to misinformation. Oh, yeah. And we've done nothing. We haven't Nothing. made a single, I mean, everybody, I mean, the, the people who scream the loudest about free speech are the people who absolutely don't understand what free speech means. I agree, they actually. They've never read the First Amendment. They've never done they actually know what the words are. But they scream free speech because they think free speech means say anything you want, anytime you want, to anyone you want without repercussions. Right. And that's not what it meant, not what it means. And you can definitely say, at least... You know, hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of misinformation on the internet. 100%. How many people who were 280 pounds with diabetes didn't wear a mask or didn't get a vaccine and are dead now? A ton. They're, they're, they're fucking dead. Yeah. And, and think about that. A million people in the United States died. More than that. More than that, yeah. But at least a million died. So how many? So that's a million people dead. But that's tens of millions of people affected because of them having family, them having coworkers, them having clients. I mean, tens of millions of people were affected by by COVID deaths, and we did nothing. Literally, now, now how did how did COVID affect your mental health? Um, not well. Um, I was fine being kind of locked away for a while because. I'm kind of a, uh, a homebody myself. Right. And I'm kind of a private person. Yeah. So I was like, oh, well, this is just, I mean, and my daughter had just been born. 
Oh, so it was kind of nice in a way. She was born in 2019, so she was about, what, eight months old or something like that wow. when it hit, maybe maybe right about a year. Which, that was probably really scary, too, the unknown with having a that newborn, was, too. What, yeah, that's why I was totally on, like locked in, because I was like, I don't know if her little one-year-old body could handle getting COVID. Yeah. So we were very strict at the house. We masked up everywhere. We, we only It was constant. I mean, I, I probably kept a couple Purell manufacturers in business you know yeah we were just very serious about it um but i i ended up getting i got covid in like a year and a half ago i i avoided it for a long time and then i let my guard down uh this comp this this th my hometown theater yeah. the theater from the town i grew up in okay wanted to screen the enormity of life oh that's awesome and and it was the theater that I saw my very first movie in. Like, literally the, the building and the... So meant a lot to you. Where I saw my very first movie. And I thought, what a full circle yeah. to come. And what a cathartic moment that will be to see, like, my biggest achievement in the place where it all started for me. Yeah. And seeing, and, and then hearing... You're giving me chills just thinking oh, about that. It's probably amazing. So I got down there, and it was, that was middle of COVID. It was September of 2021 okay so COVID was still full swing full swing and um I went down there and after the movie was over you know you do the Q&A and I was all the way down at the butt so I was you know I'm still feeling comfortable and I got out in the lobby and it's one of those small two theater buildings okay you come in there's a theater to the left there's a theater to the right concession stand in the middle right? okay I know what you're talking about so I go in there theater's still operating to this day they just showed Made in Cleveland there last year um, so every year now, I guess they toss they, it up there. That's awesome. In. But I go down there and I come out of the theater and oh my God, it is packed with people who like literally want my autograph and stuff. How exciting and, is well, that? Yeah. And that was the problem is that I should have, I totally got, went all to my head. I let my guard down yep. and they fucking gave me COVID. <laughs> Like, I swear to God, three days later. I was going to say how long after until you, later, you were like, bam, bam this is going to happen. Like, These are the only fucking people's faces I've seen in a year. And of course, I've got COVID. fucking naturally. And, um, and I, I, I'm diabetic, so I had to really worry about it. Um, so my doctor, who and I, we have a good relationship, he understands my medical history, immediately admitted me uh, to this facility to get that cocktail that they pump in you. So oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They put an IV in me and for an hour they pumped in the anti COVID stuff. No shit. And uh gone. Really? You felt like a million times better? Oh my god. Like I remember just being like so hungry, like my immune system was firing on all cylinders. Really? I just like I just I, like Dude, I had it over Christmas. Yeah? Yeah, not this past year. I think it was a year before. Um, yeah, it was, I, was in a, I was with my ex, that's at my ex, and we both had got it. And I don't think either of us were really feeling like shit. But, um, dude, it was scary because I got my six-year-old. She was I, good working at a hospital. So, I mean, there, you get a lot of situations going on. Got no she way. Positive, and she got fever and... She, of course, it was, she couldn't be vaccinated. She's vaccinated now. Yeah. But she wasn't vaccinated. There was no child vaccine at the time. Yeah. Every other vaccine that every child has gotten before they get to kindergarten. And all of a sudden, this is the one because Donald fucking Trump. I sit right in the middle. I really do. I'm not really like hardcore liberal or hardcore Republican. I kind of see. I, I actually, 
I don't even vote. And a lot of people are like, well, you shouldn't have an opinion. And that's great. But uh, I don't vote personally because I don't want to be a part of it. But I think it's um, very interesting to listen to like somebody like that who's so right wing try to tell you about it. And then hearing a doctor on the other end going, no, 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 this is killing people. You have to do it. And my kid's mom only ended up getting her vaccine because the Cleveland Clinic was like, you have to get it. You know, otherwise you can't work here. She's vaccinated for everything. Like, do you think they're just mass producing? First of all, no one can not. There's no way that many people that would have been involved to produce something like that could keep their mouth shut. There's no fucking way someone would leak it. There's no way like it's crazy. We're fucking science nerds in high school. Yeah. They were straight A students. They went to college. They studied science. Some of them went to med school. They studied medicine. They're just fucking doctors and scientists. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. There's no agenda. Scientists don't have agendas. They care about science. And if they do have an agenda, it's the, let's help the well-being of the general public. Yeah, you know what I mean? That's not even an agenda. That's just like a mission statement. Yeah, you know? so it is. I don't fucking understand how all of a sudden, like all of a sudden, for years, for years, the most noble thing you could do is be a teacher. Yeah. Right? Most you underpaid were, job you were a teacher, in the world. You were a hero. Right. Right? You were revered. Kids seeing your teacher out at school was like bumping into Ryan Gosling, right? It was like, yeah. oh my God. Oh yeah, you know what? You're right, it That's was. A teacher yeah, you get pumped. popcorn at the movies. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet now, teachers are indoctrinating the children, right? Teachers yeah. are, te- it's like, no, they're not. They're doing their jobs. And, and telling somebody the truth about the Holocaust, it's not indoctrinating them. It's teaching history. Do you worry about that when your daughter heads into school? Is like the curriculum and so stuff? Today's podcast is brought to you by one of the absolute best real estate agents in the Cleveland market, Tom Sugar with Howard Hanna Real Estate. Tom's here to help you understand the home buying and selling process. Um, He's here to ensure that you're also always going to get the best price, whether you're buying a home or whether you're selling a home, and his customer service skills are top notch. Give Tom a call at 216-406-2841. That's 216-406-2841. You can call or text him or visit his website, shugsells.com, S-H-U-G-S-E-L-L-S.com. Visit Tom Sugar, everybody. He is the best. It's weird for me because she's a COVID baby. Right. right. She, she's been home, right? We don't, you know, I, I never would have put her into daycare anyway. Right. My wife and I are we're self-employed. So we don't, we don't need it. We can drag her around everywhere and she's pretty cool with it. Um, however, it's really, not to take this into a too political discussion, but the whole gun problem we have in this country is preventing me from ever wanting to put my kid into a school until we fix it. And the fact is we're never going to fix it. It's scary. The cool thing about this school is, like, they actually, it's actually, it's not solely for LGBTQ, but but that's sort of its focus. Okay. And so they definitely have a different attitude about school. Um, There are days where my daughter... um, will feel anxious and just say, I need to I need to leave class and go sit out. They have like a little lobby. Yeah. And she's like, I need to just go sit out there for a minute and they're fine with it. Or there'll be days where she wants to come in here and help me edit something. Right. And she just tells them, I'm coming in late tomorrow. Right. You know, and she can go in and 
go right to her teacher the next day and get all of her stuff and and they'll give her time. There's no like repercussion for right, it. Right. It's not like a you better be here or you're truant. Right. right? That's not even I don't even know that my daughter would know the word truant. Um, so it, it it works for her. Plus she has a lot of outside interests. Um, she's done acting and she's you know done some stuff. So it, it's allowed it frees her up a little bit to pursue things that she wants to do after school. Which I think is like, I, I like that idea of kind of having a little bit more flexibility with it or just like a little bit more independence. Because I feel like a lot of times too, when you're in school like that, they're shoving down this, all this information down your throat and you're just trying to take in what you can to pass this test, right? It's not necessarily yeah. this is a passion or I give a shit about, yeah, about it. When you, when, you are man, when it's mandatory to be there every single day of your life, it, it doesn't, I mean... I don't know. It's, it's, I think we're past that. It kind of puts you in that nine-to-five box. Yeah, but the right? problem is, in this country, we don't want to change anything. The one thing I will say that even this school falls into problem is they're still teaching shit that they were teaching me when I was in 10th grade. For real? That's not relevant anymore. Like, in this world, does a 10th t- grader need to know about, like, erosion and deltas and sedimentary rock that's a and and that's my whole point is like that's the kind of shit where like if you're interested in it fucking rock on dude i'm all about it but like let's do this and it seems like every year they they just cover the same eras it is like they don't like nobody wants to cover slavery right no but it's like oh we're gonna right now my daughter i think she's saved they're studying the roaring 20s like why why yeah yes that's a that's a thing that happened but so what I mean, what can we? Do? I mean, I guess it's under. It's good to understand the past to move forward, I suppose. But, what, but to harp I'm on sure it. Sure, the aspects that they're talking about in the in the Roaring Twenties are the dance moves. Well, they probably put on the Great Gatsby and yeah, call yeah, it a day. Talking about like oh the you know the true depression and right. and all that other stuff. Or, um, I mean, teach them. Up, I don't know. It's it's weird. I I I remember thinking like oh I want to be really involved in her education. Because my parents really weren't. Right. Like, I could come home. I didn't get serious about my education until I was, like, a senior in high school. Okay. Maybe a junior. No, I, I had to, I feel like I had to be smart. All my friends were really smart. I was, fr- so we had three valedictorians and three salutatorians. Okay. At our graduation. So you're some smart people, And man. I was, I was good friends with all six of them. Like, in my close circle. Okay. And I wasn't even close to that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I get it. I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the mentions for that one. So I was just sort of like being smart enough. Like I was, I was not dumb. I just didn't care about school. Right. I mean, I think I was always, you know, funny and articulate and quick witted and stuff. But I didn't, I wasn't a good studier. I didn't care about that stuff. And so I had to do it well to fake it. So my friends didn't think I was an idiot. Right. Um, because back then, you know, you book smart was the only smart that counted. See, and that's – so that kind of leads me to my next question because you make some super interesting points. You had gone to college. What is your – I'll give you my opinion first. I think if you're going to go to college, it's phenomenal, but I think you should know what you're going for. Like for me, I'd gone back to college to be a teacher, and I would still love at some point to be a teacher – and then I found this and I became fucking obsessed, right? And like, I feel like once you find that obsession, that's great. So if you find that obsession before you decide to go to school, that's great. I know some people say, oh, I found it in school. Um, for you, what, is you, what would your advice be to somebody 
um, who's like in that debacle of like, hey, you know, I don't know where to go. Do I go to school and just do it because my parents want me to? Or do I follow maybe another path and figure out really what I want to do? Well, what I would tell people is going to college is not more than likely not going to get you a job. Right. Like I could, I could which was pushed on, I'm sure your generation, generation definitely mine. If you don't go to college, <laughs> Bill Clinton was in office. Pell Grant was just becoming a thing. It was becoming more affordable to go to college because more money was being made available. Okay. So it was, it was, it, was, it became less of a, um, of an economic thing or status thing because every, like in my graduating class, I would say 90% went to college. Oh, really? And I graduated with like, you know, 400. Kids. I'd say that's the same. I graduated with 233 in Rocky River and I 90, 95% yeah, went. Yeah, yeah, we all went. But we were sold a bill of goods that didn't exist. You're going to go to college and you'll make a million dollars more in your lifetime <laughs> yeah. than someone who didn't go to college. Yep. Um, that's I, like actually how it was pitched, yeah, though, it too. Was. It was. Yeah. That was the exact yeah. stat. Now, I could right now apply somewhere and say that I graduated magna cum laude from Harvard. You're not going to check. No. Unless you're unless you're um, applying for like an academic position where they ask for your transcripts. Of course. Um, but if you're applying for just any job, if I say I want a job as director of marketing at you know Sony, wherever. <laughs> Maybe Sony's different, but like let's say Sherwin Williams, right? Right. No, I bet you HR at Sherwin Williams isn't. Going to call Harvard and take a look. And look it up. They're just going to go, wow, that's great. And if I can go in there and lie about it, great. So. Going to college most likely is not going to get you a job. But I, we, had a, we had a student here at the academy uh, who went off to film school. And the advice I gave her was, make, college is going to be what you make out of it. Nobody's going to give you amazing opportunities. If you want to do something, go tell a professor or someone, I want to do this. I, w- I want to do this project. I mean, that's like literally what you have to do because yeah. you, cause I think as a, ch- as, a, as a kid or as a student, sometimes you're expecting it to come to you or them to come to you, and it's just not how that works. Yeah, you have, like, I, I remember going to professors and, and saying, I want to do this project, and I know that at the time our college had certain things called independent study. Yep. And you could create a class for yourself that was basically just a project. So I was like, I want to do the sketch comedy show and turn it into a, get a credit for it, right? And I did. Um, and then, um, so I would say, you know, going there is great. You're, you're going to meet people, especially if you come from a small town. You've got to get out. You've got to you got to go. darker skin than you and speak different languages than you and have different worldviews and come from different governments and had health care in other countries. You have to meet those people. Because there's a there's a, a meme that I've seen going around that says, get out of your hometown at least for a little while because there's more to life than the same ten people in the same ten bars that were there when you went. And and you know I have a a lot of people that I went to high school with ended up going back to my hometown. I moved out for a while too. I moved to Miami. I moved to Dallas, and I think you're. You, I mean, I couldn't agree more because I was surrounded with being down in South Florida, Haitian people from the earthquake. So funny you say that. The first, like, one of the first people I met in college was a guy from Haiti. Really? And um, it was during that whole thing. It spoke like French Creole and the whole it thing, was like huh? That, during that whole Haiti conflict. You know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They've never been doing great down there. And, he, and I just remember, like, you know, just talking to him and just, you know, learning different, you know, like, I, 
you know, I, I, I have Muslim friends that mm-hmm. I met in college. Um, we don't hate each other. No. You know, I'm atheist, so I don't, you know. I don't. I think everybody who has a religion is off the rocker, so it doesn't really matter what religion it is. I was raised Catholic, man, and I think it is. In my family, my I didn't get my son baptized or anything like that because I think I think Catholicism is the biggest cult of all fucking time, in my opinion. Um, I think Joe Rogan has like one of my favorite quotes. He's like. Yeah, he's like, I knew some of the effect of like, I knew something, something was off when you're like, you know, repeating whatever the, the guy dressed like a wizard says or whatever, you know. And so, I don't know. I haven't done a ton of studying on religion. I listen to like Andy Stanley. I've done a shit ton of research on religion because I, I tend to write about it a lot in my films and stuff. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing to me. I don't believe a word of it, but I'm fascinated by people who believe it. Right. Right. I'm fascinated by people who live their lives by it. Um, so I, I researched it. it a lot, you know, like so I could create characters and understand how they think about it. Right. But it's to me, it's all BS. What's the biggest bullshit religion in your opinion? Well, they're all bullshit. I, I, I really agree I mean, for the most part. I really do. Say out loud. There's an invisible man who lives in the clouds who watches over me every second of every day. From right. The day I'm born until the day I die. Cares who I sleep with. Cares what kind of meat I eat. And is going to throw me into a pit of hell if I do either one of those things he doesn't like. Yeah. If you say that out loud three times fast, that's fucking hilarious, atheist, right? That Although is my fucking funny. Is like, that's um, fucking actually hilarious. I used to say, I used to say, you know, back before you were allowed to say you were atheist. Yeah. It was like a time where it was easier to, I think, say you were gay than it was to say you were an atheist. Yeah, and it didn't fly. Um, so, but you could say. So I used to joke and say, I would. I, I'm agnostic. I would be atheist, but I've seen Jennifer Love Hewitt, so there's a chance there's a God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that was she just is my smoking joke fucking of hot. Like, of like rolling over my I'm more of a Jennifer Lawrence kind of guy. Je- yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. She's got it going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think all religion is, is wacky. Um, it, to me, it's, it's such a silly concept. And, and, and this is, and I was going to write a, a sketch that I never actually wrote, but I've pitched it a couple times. So, like, when you study religion, you learn that the story of Christ is is plagiarized. Yes. And there was an exact same story a thousand years before about a virgin birth and, and then the the, re, the resurrection and all that stuff. So. Lost me at virgin birth. But then you say a thousand years later, and, and if you know this, if you know that the story of Christ was told a thousand years before... You doesn't it ever occur to you that like wait a minute, then this one can't be true, because it's already been told completely differently. But now it's under a different thing. So I the, the sketch that I actually was pitching was couldn't agree with you more like on that. It's like going into a movie studio and saying, "All right, I got a movie I want to pitch you. It's about this kid and this like doctor scientist guy, and they build a time machine, and they go oh like like Back to the Future." No, 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 no. It's not like Back to the Future. It's a completely different movie. So they're they're they have this time machine, and they build it out of a out of a car. Like let's say, and the guy goes, like a DeLorean. No, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Okay. So they build a time machine out of a DeLorean, and they go back in time, and and they're like, you're telling me the story of Back to the Future. Of course. And what? No, no. It's a completely new thought. It's we're gonna make this movie. And they're like, 
what's is, is the kid's name Marty? No, it, it's Morty. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it's Doctor Brown, Doc Doc Black. That's his name. And like, no, you're. So that's to me like, like religion. Well, it's weird how it's like. I think also what's frustrating for me is how the stories have changed through the years, right? Like, and that's where it really lost me. Where when we're when we start adding things, with no like. Like what? It's it's not like I mean I hate to say it, but it's not like the, you know the priest at at Saint you know uh, Chris went to over to fucking you know uh, the Holy Land and found something new out. Now we're gonna add it to the you know what I mean? Yeah. The weird thing about religion is it was it was created to control people. Right. To 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 make people fearful so that they would stay in line, and this to this day it's still serving that purpose. And the sad part is, is that mo- I believe that most people who call themselves religious, in their heart of hearts, know it's bullshit. Yeah, I agree. But there is a piece that comes to them of saying, it's out of my hands. Well, I don't have to take accountability. I don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. Because it's already predestined. But I think where I also struggle with it is... In Catholicism, it's like, wait a second. So I can go sin all week long, right, and be dumb and do things that God considers a sin all day long, and then I come see you on Sunday, and you just tell me, you know, I'm good to go. All your sins are clear. It's like, wait a second, no. Like there has to be some sort of accountability after the fact, right? Yeah. The other part of me is um, the cherry picking. Yeah. Right. If you read like the book of like Leviticus. Okay. Um, there's a I think 72 sins in that book, give or take a few. Right? Okay. Something like 72 different sins that are like mortal or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, being gay is one of them. I knew that. But also there's 71 others that nobody is in Congress trying to prevent people. So wearing clothing made out of two types of fabric right. is an equal sin homosexuality. Not fucking wild. Eating shrimp is an equal sin to homosexuality. Getting a tattoo is an equal sin to homosexuality. Growing two types of crops in the same field is an equal sin to homosexuality. Wow. When was the last time some fucking Republican congressman <laughs> went up there and said, I want to start a bill that said farmers can only grow corn and if they grow potatoes... They're going to hell, and we're going to tax the shit out of them. You know, well, these politicians nowadays just, I mean, you know it just as well as I do. It's a popularity contest, number one. And people the, people aren't becoming politicians to be politicians. They're becoming politicians to fundraise. To fundraise. And that's it. Like, look at, like, fucking Nancy Pelosi and all the money that she's stolen throughout the years. And you look at fucking Hillary Clinton, you know, like, or, you know, and, any politician. It does, it's not even specific to them necessarily, right? Um, but like, wow, like you guys have a shit ton of money on this insane salary. It's because you did all this fundraising. You know what I mean? Um, well, it's not, it's not even fundraising. That's just illegal. Or donations or whatever they call it. Yeah. Or bribe money or whatever it might be. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, but yeah, going, you know, going back to the, all the other stuff, the, um, school shootings and stuff like that. I mean, obviously we covered that in enormity. And it was something that, you know, we felt we wanted to cover, but without being preachy about it, you know. Right. Um, 
It started off as it was just going to be. I mean, initially the characters of Jess and Jules were supposed to be minor characters in the film, and but we I liked them a lot, and we ramped it up, expanded that out, and so initially the her knowing all those statistics about guns and that was just supposed to be a, a a quirk for an interesting scene, and it just expanded out and became. Um, more about what the movie was about do you what's your next like film like what do you what do you what do you I mean if you can tell me at least obviously you don't want to give it all away but what are you what are you working on now um that you're excited for like well, what are you what are you looking forward to in life i guess would be a well, better question we're in development uh on a streaming series right now okay uh, that we've been writing really for three years because it started right before the pandemic hit and we were meeting you know you know regularly with with some other writers to put together this show. And Emily Kinney uh, is uh, in slight, she's somewhat involved. She's, she's, she's attached as an executive producer and potentially to be in the, the first season. Oh, sweet. Um, so she, uh, so we've been writing that and then the pandemic hit and we weren't really able to get together as much. And uh, I'm not a big fan of, zoom when it comes to creative yeah it's probably tough the thing about writing with other writers is when when that moment hits where everybody jives on the on the new idea and there's just an energy in the room people are standing up now you know there's just this thing of like yeah that's that's the idea you don't get that on zoom on zoom you got four writers sitting there talking you go what if she did this okay yeah that could work you know, that's how it goes. But when you're in a room, in a writer's room with people, and somebody says, oh, what if she does this? And everybody's, fuck yeah, I mean, yeah, this could happen and that. And everything changes. And when we didn't have that, it just kind of, it, it died out a little bit. I believe it. We all took a little break. And then when things opened up, we, we got back on board. But some of the people had kind of moved on to some other stuff. So, and so then we almost kind of had to start over. And then new ideas that started to creep in and then we rewrote everything right so we've blown it up a couple times and now we're writing a series we're writing a 10 episode first season um but the the um the whole arc has completely changed from the idea that we had three years ago and it's it's almost an unrecognizable series really based on what you had at first yeah so but we're um we're trying to get back in the in the horn i just brought on a new writer who um, to put some fresh eyes on some stuff that we've already written. It's always good. Um, and so we're excited about that. Um, but you know, I've been I've been you know a little bit bogged down with uh, with with you know opening this place up and, and everything. But the thing about my career trajectory is you know I I've done two films, two features in ten years, right? And Enormity I wrote in twenty fifteen. Really? And we didn't start shooting until 2018. And it didn't come out until 2021. And because of COVID, we actually didn't like what our distributor was doing. So we sued them. Oh, really? We got out of our contract, hired another distributor, and it got re-released in 2022. No so shit. It took seven years from the time that I registered the script with the WGA to the time that we 
that it was really out there. It really actually got out there. And I, and I agree with the stuff with you, with you talking, like when you're in person, it makes such a difference. Like, I mean, I won't do a podcast over zoom. People have been like, oh, let's do one over Zoom. And I'm like, it sucks. During the pandemic. Yeah. It's just not the same. No, it's not. So I guess my point is on that movie, it took me seven years to do that. And I feel like episodic is is where I want to go right now. Really? Because um, obviously people aren't going to the movies anymore. No, they're not. All those cinemas are shutting shutting down. Yeah, they're streaming. Um, Episodic, if you can land... A, you know, uh, you know, a, a deal where you've got a, you know one to three seasons, and you've got a gig, you've got an everyday job, right? You've got some security and going to work every day. It's not that grind of getting this movie out. I mean, it, making a movie can be really depressing, you know. That's uh, so. Go into that. I talk about that because I, I was curious from somebody who's never written, like. I mean, definitely not a film. So it's interesting to, it's it's crazy to watch a movie and go, this is all like pre-planned. This is something that somebody had a vision on and um, to be able to write something. And then is one thing, but I think being able to then put it into film, it's got to be a whole different story. Well, when you do an independent film, it it's interesting because it starts off with this idea that everybody's excited about, right? Okay. And then you bring all these people into the fold that you want to work with. And then you, you become a family, right? You work and you work and you work. And then, you, and then as somebody, as the person who sort of created this film uh, and put it all together, you know, I was the writer, uh, I was the director, and I was the main producer, right? So I had a hand in every decision that went into that movie. Right. Um, and you are constant, and, and you have the most invested, right? I have the most invested in this film in terms of what it can do for my career, what it can do for this, what it can do for that. Everybody else, they have some invested, but not to the same extent. Of course. And you have to constantly be the cheerleader for the project to keep everybody as focused and as excited and as gung-ho as you can. And they are, if you, if you know how to lead people, you can lead them into that battle, right? And then slowly, that project start, they start to, those people start to whittle away, right? They do. Right, so pre-production is over, so those people aren't really involved anymore. Now we're filming, we've got all these actors, we've got all these crew, and then production is over and those people go away. And then you're kind of down to a couple producers who are still sort of involved in things. And then you get into the editing room, and one day you're sitting there with your editor, and you realize it's just the two of you in the room. That's who's left. You and this other guy, or other woman and you're sitting there and you're editing your film and other people have kind of you know they're still there they're still involved but they're they've all they've all moved on to other projects right Right. and now it's you and you might call them up and say hey i'm going to send you some footage or do you want to come into to the studio and watch watch this cut or whatever but you kind of feel very alone at that point where like you are everybody else has has had the opportunity to move on to something else because they were kind of a hired gun Right, and you are still living and breathing it, but now it feels like it's just you. you sometimes you feel like you're the only person who's going to cross the finish line. Right, and you know it, it can be a little you, you, it can be a little depressing where you're like, man, where did everybody go? Well, that's it, and like I feel like that's I feel like though anytime you do something great like that, for instance, it's it is it's lonely. 
you know because like i and i can i can tell from like everything you I know mean, everything you've got here the whole setup and everything i can tell you worked hard you know what i mean for what you have so it's like and you you tell you appreciate it and you, i think it's great too is that you're you have a, people around you that you're helping grow that want you to do well um, I'm a big believer in, you know, there's a difference between people that want the best for you and people that believe in you, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's really cool because you seem to really surround yourself with the right people. Um, but I also can relate to, you know, everybody is out and about doing their things with their friends or whatever it might be. And you're sitting because you've got this dream. But yeah, it's a lonely process. And I it believe is, it. Because, yeah. I mean, if you're the one, if you're at the top of the food chain on that project, you, you do end up taking the brunt Being all by yourself at some point um was that your like i don't want to call it like your lowest point mentally but was that a point mentally where you're sitting there you're like like wait, what did you do to get out of that space i mean i was always about getting the movie out i mean if i mean i had such a positive experience working with brecken working with emily working with giselle and them just believing in me you know they had no reason to believe in me they liked the script that was it. They didn't know who I was. Um, they liked the script, mm -hmm. and so they did it. And then they came on board, and, um, you know, I obviously, I think, had to prove myself for the first, you know, of course. few days of filming that I, 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 could, I could handle what they're used to. Um, but I, I appreciated that these people who were um, at the caliber that they were, that they're at in their careers, trusted me with their careers, right? trusted me that I was going to put something out that was going to make them look good. And of course. Make them perhaps more marketable, right? Um, so that that was my driving force. Like, these people, you know, believed in me. These people that I looked up to, or Giselle looked down to. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Uh, Seriously, right? Uh, but they believed in me enough to do it, and so I was just, I was going to make sure that I did right by them. Right. And then I had, like, a lot of crew members and stuff. Um you know, a lot of them were hired guns that I probably haven't spoken to since. But my cinematographer, Sage O'Brien, uh, he's co-writing and co-producing the series that we're writing uh, with me. Um, and he's, you know, he's he's never he's never gone away. He's he's been there. Because uh, Sage, uh, honestly, if I'm being completely candid, he he works for the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, not in a film capacity. He's a brilliant cinematographer. But he doesn't do it full time. He works for the Cleveland Clinic, so there's not there's nothing at stake for him. Like if 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 this series, if I tomorrow say this series isn't going to happen, he's still got a, a nice job at you know one of the largest hospitals in the world, and he's fine. You know. So and does it? Else, they see me as a little bit of a. What can I do for them right now? Right. In their career, and when there's nothing going on for them, I don't hear from them so much. That's got to be kind of tough for you, too, because you're probably then sitting there going, all right, well, what is this relationship then? And then, like... I feel like I... I want, like, anybody that I like... Yeah. Like, I want to I be friends with them, right? Of course. More than just work, man. We should go out and get dinner. We should go out and... Yeah. And, you know, and that's probably, to my, that's probably my fault of, like, well, they've got other shit going on. And, and you can't look at it like that for yourself, but I think that is tough because you do, especially when you have the success you've had, where it's like, oh, well, like maybe I'll hit Eric up now because, or whatever. Because the reality of it is, is um, some of these people, I'm sure, if you were to hit somebody up you haven't spoken to in a long time and they haven't reached out to you because they don't give a shit how you're doing, they think of you as such a meal ticket, but you call them and you go, I got this amazing role for you while well, they're your best friend again. Right. And that's not, you know, and that's got to be, 
and I'm sure there's two sides to it because there's also that part where it's like, hey, listen, maybe this person is like that, but they're perfect for the role. Right, right. You know what I mean? Actors, I don't so much care if they do that because that's their job. They yeah. come to the set and they go. Yeah. But people that I've really invested in relationships in terms of producing and, and, and people that, that are really there and then they kind of go away and you're, you know, it, it, it does... It, you know, I guess I, I sort of have, I sometimes expect more out of people than maybe they expect out of me from a uh, personal relationship. Well, you expect a lot out of yourself, I could tell. And yeah. so, like, you, you push yourself to the limit, I could, you know, and, and I think... Um, I had this discussion with a business owner the other day, and I was like, no one is going to care more about your business than yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is, right? It's your business. It's your baby. You know, you can hire everybody you want to come in here unless you give them some sort of vested interest in the business. The reality of it is, is that's, you're going to you're going to be the one that cares the most. Yeah. Um, and I think it can be probably really tough to run a business like that, but specifically in this sort of setting where you're also given probably quite a few options on who you could use for different things. And then it's probably even tougher to dial in who's perfect for that. Well, I'm at the point <clears throat> right now in my career where I, I kind of only work with the same people now. That's great. Like I don't really, I'm not, I'm not actively bringing new people into the fold. Right. Because I don't have the, you know, I, when you're doing independent films and stuff, there's really no room for error uh, of of not working with the right person. Right. So, you know, when you look at guys like Tarantino and the Coen brothers and, and people like that who constantly work with the same people over and over and over again, and they're just, not just crew but cast too, you understand why. There's a comfort level of I trust you, you trust me, let's go do our thing. And they understand what you're looking for too. Yeah, yeah. So that's nice. Um, the other issue I run into, you know, by still being here, right, everyone will say like, well, why... Why, why are you still in Cleveland? Why haven't you moved you know, to L.A. or whatever it might be? Um, first of all, it's, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to make movies here oh, yeah. than, than it is. I mean, I, I have a lot of contacts in the acting world right? Right. in terms of like people with names and stuff that I can work with. But I don't live in a world where people come in with you know, million-dollar checks, right? Right. And say, let me just fund this whole thing. So you know, we, we try to be budget-conscious when we make stuff. Normandy was made on about a $400,000 budget. Well, it looks like a bigger budget it movie. Was, it was very strategic, and a lot of that was like Sage O'Brien and Mark Polly, Patrick Antone, understanding what kind of look I wanted to and how to, how to get it um, you know, the independent way. Yeah. So that we, we kind of had this strategy of get really good, well-lit coverage shots and pick our moments when we wanted to get big. Yeah. And every scene kind of had one moment, so we weren't spending all day on one shot, you know? Which can be, I'm sure, also tough when you're not getting the shots that you want. Yeah, but I mean, we got, we got, we pretty much shot the movie that we thought we were gonna shoot. Um, but where I, where I run into issues with still being here in Cleveland is I can't do anything small anymore. Right. And what I mean by that is it's not because I, I, did, I did a big movie, it's because if I say, you know, I just wanna do this short little film that I'm just that I just care about. It has nothing to do with making money or anything else. I just wanna, I just wanna tell this story. Okay. Right. I want to spend a week shooting it, and then I'll just cut it together myself, and it'll just be, you know, an art piece, right? I can't do that anymore, because I, I always use this is the example I use all the time. If I 
let's say I need a sound guy, right? And the sound guy that I typically use, his name is Davey. He works out in Atlanta now. Okay. He's from Pittsburgh. He's crushing it out in Atlanta. He's, he's killing it out there. He's, he's, he's my go-to. There's a lot of great uh, people in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta yeah. a couple weeks ago. and Yeah, they, I love Atlanta. Yeah, so he's, he's, my, he's my go-to sound guy. But on a project like Passion Project, I can't really afford to fly him out and all that stuff. I get it. So then I start going, okay, well, let, let's, let's, let's see if we can hire a local sound guy, right? And there's this perception of independent filmmakers who've had the tiniest little bit of success. And I would say our success is the tiniest little bit of success. It's, if There's a perception that, that I am rolling in money. Okay. Right? Yeah. And I'm not. I, you know, I'm, I'm a... I, I, we do okay. Okay. But the perception is that I, that, I'm, that I am. And so if I say, hey, I'm looking for a sound guy. And I get all these resumes. I'm like, oh, cool, cool. Yeah. And as soon as they see my name on it... Stupid They're $1,200 a day. I believe it. They're $1,200 a day. And I'm like, wait a minute, dude. I'm looking at your resume... And every film that you did was for the 48-hour film festival. Were you getting $1,200 a day for that? No. You've barely gotten paid to be a sound guy. But suddenly, you're a $1,200 a day sound guy because it's me and you think that I have money to piss away. Right. And I can't do any projects because everybody thinks that I can afford to pay them as if this is some big production Hollywood film. And I just stopped doing it. Right. Um, we put out a couple things recently. Um where I've asked the people I'm working with not to mention my name as part of the project. I said, because it's going to derail the project. People are going to have a higher expectation of what the project is or could be. Or could pay him. It's just nothing. It's just a fun project where I want to get together with some creative people and make something. And they get to do that because they've got a bunch of friends who don't make any money off their projects. Right. There's no expectation to make money. You know? Um, And it's, it's super frustrating that I mean, when we put casting notices out, I tell them don't put my name on it, don't mention the, my company and anything. Nothing, because as soon as you do, the dollar amount triples. Yeah. And I've had, I've had, I actually had a sound guy who could have worked, done all the sound for Enormity, um, agree to a day rate, and then when he came in to to sign his contract and realize it was me, he like tripled his day rate. Can't get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I don't. That's what I would have that said. Meeting lasted forty-five seconds. I believe it. I didn't say get the fuck out of here, but I, I might as well. You might as well. Yeah. And it's a, it's just sad though because people do that. That's what they want to do. They want to take advantage. I had a DP you know? um, agree to a a, a a a full project rate, and then we were sitting in the living room of one of the producers, you know, as we were getting closer to filming, and all of a sudden, he was wanting to double what he had he literally signed uh, um, a letter of intent and an offer letter to do it for this rate and we're sitting there it's like 10 o'clock at night at this producer's house and he's doubling his rate and asking like well can you get the money can you just and literally while I'm sitting there I'm going yeah, yeah we could probably do it I'm literally texting yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm literally texting my other guy, uh, Sage, and saying, "Hey, are you still interested in doing this?" Yeah. And he's texting back, like, "Yeah, call me tonight." And I was like, "Okay." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." yeah. yeah I'll, let me see what I can do. We'll chat soon, buddy. And, and then, and then when I left, I called him and I was like, "Do you want to do this? Is this what I can offer you?" Yep. 
And he said, I'll do it. And um, I texted the other guy. I said, look, we can't double that rate. I'm going to have to go with somebody else. I said, I didn't want And I was like, not firing him. Yeah, I was but... basically saying, like, I don't want to waste your time. If, if we can't meet your needs, then, you know, I'll go with somebody who, who can. And that was it. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh, no, 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 no. And then they, and I was like. Yeah, of course. It's too late. Off, too late. The offer's been extended to somebody else. Yeah. Because you tried to fucking price gouge me. A month before we started filming. So I have one final question for you, and it's you've been great, by the way. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on here and, and taking the time out of your day, especially on a Sunday. Um, as far as your mental health goes and like how you feel right now with all the amazing things that you've done and all your great accomplishments, and um, you know, I mean, you seem to be like a super, like, you know, straight headed guy who's just like. Um, has a really great passion. Where would you rate your happiness right now on a scale of one to ten? And what would you say if it's not a ten? What would you say you could do to get it closer to a ten? So, about a year ago, I know you wanted to talk about mental health and stuff, and I and normally is about. No, no, we do. You've done great. Um, this is perfect. But about a year ago, this is a great podcast. For I real. had a, um, I had an incident where I kind of lost my temper over the most minute thing, right? And I kind of lost my shit. And I was in the house. Uh, I, was, I think me and the wife and Ellie was there. And I, I couldn't calm down. And I knew I couldn't calm down. Like, I was consciously... Which is the worst, I man. was consciously telling myself, why the f*** are you so worked up? Just yeah. knock it off. And I couldn't. And um, it freaked me out. Because I... I, I I like to be in control of things. And, I'm the same way, though. Man. I wasn't in control at that moment. And I remember I went back to bed. It was like 9 o'clock in the morning. And after I had that freak out, I went back to bed. And I crashed till like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, which I hadn't done in years and years. Called my doctor, set up an appointment. And he said that the fact that falling asleep for four hours like sort of reset me told him what he needed to know so he put me on zoloft oh yeah which i've been on um and it's definitely helped like if i forget to take my zoloft in the morning probably about three in the afternoon i'll be aware of it because i'll notice things are off off where i'm getting edgy or I'm getting it leaves your system quick i was on 20 milligrams of lexapro for a couple years and um i mean i've had it all man suicidal thoughts uh the whole fucking thing you know alcohol drug problems i mean not like you know, I'm not shooting heroin, but I was definitely no stranger to a, an, an abundance of cocaine and alcohol, you know, just doing my thing. And I think um, once I finally got my, you know, clear headed and was started doing the right thing again um, is when I was like considering going back on my meds because ironically when i was off of them i was doing the wrong thing right so and it, and it does kind of switch you up a little bit so i'm still in between though because i feel like it really i feel so much less motivated when i'm on them but i also yeah. feel like maybe i'm i wasn't on the right one well, i had probably been on the meds for about three months and then we hired this writer uh, this this writer from upright citizens brigade yeah to come on to the project and we were having these really intense writing sessions and i would and i realized like the meds were clouding my creativity. Like normally I can, I can bang out 10 or 15 pages in a night if I'm, if I'm really jazzed about the story. Damn. And I was really jazzed about this pilot and I could not crank anything out. The way I could describe it is, so I, if you know my work, I'm a, I'm a dialogue writer. Right. I like to write very intricate 
dialogue. Yeah, it's not of, simple dialogue yeah, that you have. I understand that. A lot of nuance. Yeah. And, and and so I that's what that's where I consider my strong suit. And we're writing, or I'm going at home after these meetings and saying, okay, I'm going to crank out this stuff. And here's the best way I could describe it. If if I were to tell you about the pilot, I could describe it to you from beginning to end as if I had watched it and I was just telling a friend, hey, you should see this show. This is what this is what it happens. Yeah. But I couldn't hone in on the specifics of the scene in terms of what people were saying and to get, you know, all the the nuances of it. I, I get it. Just tell you, this is the Which is so story. important, right? Yeah. The nuances are there everything and at I the end of the day. I couldn't write anything. Like it was like I could see the characters in my head, I could see them in the location that they were in, I could see them talking, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. Right. Because in a weird way, I don't write dialogue, the characters write dialogue. And I, when right. I write, I become that character, and they just speak, and I just write, right? And I was like literally seeing these characters in my head, like in those dreams that you have where you can't speak. Yeah. They were like, they would be talking, and I could see their faces, I could see the set, I could see the camera angles, and they're, nothing's coming out of their mouths when they're talking. And so I went off the Zoloft against my doctor's wishes. Right. And then I felt like my creativity started to come back, but I also felt like my mental health was also suffering, eroding as well. Oh yeah. So we changed the dosage a little bit and I feel like I'm still having these writer, writer's blocks that I feel like I still attribute to the meds, but I'm also at a point where I've got an almost four year old I'm afraid of losing my shit in front of and having that be her memory of me. Yeah. So, and I, 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 had a, I didn't have an abusive stepdad, but I had somewhat emotionally despondent and somewhat mentally abusive. Stepdad. I understand, yeah, like emotional abuse. It was like he, he had two kids of his own. And we all were a family. Yeah. But it was, it was still this, they're my kids. And, yeah, I got you. And, and it sort of fucked me up, you know, for a long time. I, um, about like just that, you know, oh, I'm not wanted. I'm not loved. Yeah, there's no bond there. And I, I, and I always said, if I ever have a kid, that like, they're never gonna feel that. They're gonna know their father's love. Yeah. Right. They're gonna know that. that they Absolutely. And so I never. So that's really why I stay on the meds, is and sort of maybe sacrifice a little bit of my creativity. Yeah. Because uh, I don't want to. I just don't even want the 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 option yeah i had made some definite decisions in front of my son when i was going through my situation even prior to that just like stupid decisions like lies that maybe i had told in front of him one notably like i had lied about whether i was smoking a cigarette or not outside of a bar or restaurant we were with with my son now like hit the cigarettes i was just trying to hide them from my ex and my son was out there with me and i'm like lying to my ex through my fucking teeth about i didn't smoke and all this shit and then my son's like oh they're right there you know and i like look like the biggest idiot of all time and i think that's something that actually replays in my head often probably at least once or twice a week now because i'm like i was so selfish at that time and just so like i just didn't give a shit about anybody else but myself you know and it's like what kind of lesson is that for him yeah. You know, and so like, those are the kinds of things. But I understand the creativity block, and I understand. And it's 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 a weird thing because it's like my brain is split into two. The first half knows everything that's happening, and the second half says, "But how does it happen?" You know, and it yeah, it's everything, and it's like they're fighting each other, and it's like, man, if I could just, and that's why I keep, and I've never traditionally hired other writers because I could bang that stuff out. Yeah, I've been bringing other writers in because. 
I need people who can who can uh, kind of help unblock that side for me. Um, Which is good though that you're kind of trying to find ways around it too. You know, I think it's, and I appreciate you talking about it as well. Like just to note that because it's not an easy conversation. Uh, I think a lot of people like. Um, I think one of the worst things I was ever called in my whole life, something that sticks with me, was somebody telling me um, on like an Instagram story, just fucking slamming me. Um, she said, uh, you're mentally ill. And she said it to the whole world. And I think that was like one time in my life where I was like, I felt so exposed and so vulnerable. And after that, I was like, even with this podcast, I'm like, I'm never going to let somebody hurt me again. I'm going to expose myself and make it vulnerable. And yeah, I think we all just have, and there are people who are definitely mentally ill. 100%, 100%. But then there are people who just have trauma, mm -hmm. and it manifests itself in different ways. Yeah. And we, and we, more people have trauma than want to admit they have trauma. Once you can kind of look at, at your past and say, this is probably the root of my issues. Right. And be honest with yourself. And I've always been someone who was pretty honest with themselves. Um, self-evaluating yeah i took psych 101 for a semester i probably got a seat <laughs> so um i once you can like admit to yourself like where these things are coming from yeah I mean, you might not be able to fix them but at least you can uh deal with them and and try to deal with them as healthy as you possibly can yeah yeah and i know i had abandonment issues my real father left when when i was a baby and i met him once in my entire life uh, and then my, my stepfather kind of favored his kids over me. So, yeah. So obviously I needed to go into show business so everybody would love me. Yeah. I need everybody to tell me how fucking amazing. And I'm the same. I'm the, you know what? Me and you are the same way in that. Where for me, because I had, um, you know, my mom had m multiple boyfriends and, and um, I moved over. I've moved over 34 times in my life. I'm 29. So like it was never there was never a ton of stability. Um, the most stable anything ever was was actually with my stepdad at his house for that, you know, couple years we were there. But yeah, that abandonment feeling, man. People don't, and if you don't, uh, it's not something that that you actively. No, no, no. It just affects every decision that you. Have. There you go. Yeah, exactly. You know that that's the reason until you finally realize it is. Yeah. Do you know who Theo Vaughn is? Yeah, yeah. So Theo has this is this quote, and it's like, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's like. Uh, um, it's not like he always says, like, I don't necessarily think I have like actual, like chemical dependent issues with drugs. He's like, but how I'm feeling right now, or, you know, how I'm feeling affects me so heavily right now that like he, you know, you can't control anything else outside of that. Right. So like when a situation comes up where triggers that it's like nothing else in this whole world matters to you. And that's all that, yeah. that's all it is. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Yeah. I, I, I have maybe maybe three drinks a year right it's a common theme with successful people is they don't booze <laughs> and but then i have i don't then that means i have to cope <laughs> naturally yeah that's true i don't i can't i can't shut it off you should smoke some weed you smoke weed right i don't i don't i've never ingested anything other than a prescribed drug, drug in my life i've never smoked a, a joint never smoked a cigarette damn i'm impressed with all that every once in a while I'll have, if, I, if we go out to dinner, uh, and I'm talking two or three times a year. Yeah. I'll order like an old fashioned or something like that. I haven't had a drink in a while. Uh, you know, my, my stepdad drank a lot. Yeah. And that really affected me because I saw how he was a functioning alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't terrible. 
it just affected him. Well, you don't realize it though right away. And then even for me, I, my father, he lives in Florida. He's a functioning alcoholic. He'd be the first one to tell you. If I picture him now, he passed away in 2006. Yeah. But if I picture him right now, he's got a beer in his hand. Yeah. Like I can't picture him without without a beer. And 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 like he always. His breath always smelled like. You always knew it. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll order a hams just because of the. Memory. Really. Like if I find a restaurant that has it, I kind of have to order it. Yeah, just because you're there and it's, it's what there, it is. Like, Taking me back to the the 80s. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I cannot. If I think of him, it, I smell that beer breath. Yeah. Right. I think of his beer belly. Right. Yeah, you of, know it. And the 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 bottle of Blatt's that they used to come in these little barrel shapes. Yeah. So yeah, so I it just. So I never, I, I didn't drink a drop of alcohol my freshman year of college in dorm, but all my probably the first one ever. Yeah, <laughs> just, I made that decision that I wasn't. Gonna That's good that. for you though, because having that kind of self control and that discipline, I'm sure has taken you. You know what I mean? Even at that time to be like, I'm not doing this. Even for me, I can't drink anymore. But um, making that decision that I'm not going to drink is so key, right? To be like, hey. It's Friday night. I'm going to go hang out with my friends. But before I leave the house, I'm not drinking. I've made that choice. I think that it, it goes into why I, when I start projects, I finish projects. Right. Because there is that self-discipline and self-accountability that, like, you know, you know, yeah, I would like to be hanging out doing something fun, but I'm going to be at the studio till 11 o'clock tonight because I got to bang that shit. Because you got shit to do. So, yeah. So, it's, but it's interesting. I've always been interested in the self-evaluation of mental health and psychology yeah i think once you understand where your mind is then you can you can get past it and move on to be honest with yourself that was where i struggled and i think that's and i really really appreciate you sharing that stuff because that is one of those things too where you're right until you acknowledge it yourself and then realize like i have to change and then it's not just oh my god i have to change it's like now what are the actions you're going to take to get there Mm -hmm. yeah i totally understand that but no that's amazing man um Thank you for coming on. I so appreciate this conversation. This was amazing. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. But are you happy with Roger Berry? We're here with Eric Swinderman. Um, Please go watch The Enormity of Life. Um, It's on... It's on Amazon, Tubi. Yeah, Tubi is what I use, yeah. Uh, Apple TV, all of your streaming services, basically. You can find it. Uh, It's a good movie. You're the man. Well, thank you again. Seriously, bro. I appreciate it. Today's podcast is brought to you by one of the absolute best real estate agents in the Cleveland market, Tom Sugar with Howard Hanna Real Estate. Tom's here to help you understand the home buying and selling process. Um, He's here to ensure that you're also always going to get the best price, whether you're buying a home or whether you're selling a home, and his customer service skills are top notch. Give Tom a call at 216-406-2841. That's 216-406-2841. You can call or text him or visit his website, shugsells.com, S-H-U-G-S-E-L-L-S.com. Visit Tom Sugar, everybody. He is the best.